Well, today we're closing out our series, Films for Radio, which has been a journey through Psalms 120 to 134, these Psalms of Ascent. And as uh, James mentioned, next week the plan is to begin a new sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, which I've entitled Binge Watching Jesus. So I think the Gospel of Mark is the perfect book for our culture that loves to binge watch TV shows on Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime. So if you're one of those people, the Gospel of Mark might become your favorite gospel because as the narrative unfolds, it just moves from episode to episode. There's this fast-paced narrative uh, happening in the Gospel of Mark. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to binge watch Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. So go ahead this week and start reading there if you like. But today we close out this series in Psalm 134, so turn in your Bibles there. Psalm 134 reminds me of something that happens in the Chronicles of Narnia. In the last battle, C.S. Lewis illustrates how life can run on one of two tracks for people who are actually right beside each other. On the one hand, there are Peter and Lucy and Jill and Tyrion, the, the friends of Aslan, the lion, the great Christ figure. And for Aslan's friends, their world is uh, a summer morning with bright blue skies and pleasant breezes and friendship and joy and laughter and lots of it. But on the other hand, there's a group of dwarves sitting huddled together in a circle, shutting other people out. And for them, their world is a dark, smelly stable. That's what they are experiencing in their life. And then Aslan walks up to all of them. The sweet air grew suddenly sweeter. A brightness flashed behind them. All turned. Tyrion turned last because he was afraid. There stood his heart's desire, huge and real, the golden lion, Aslan himself. And already the others were kneeling in a circle round his forepaws and burying their hands and faces in his mane as he stooped his great head to touch them with his tongue. That's a picture of worship right there. Then Lucy asks Aslan if he can do anything for the dwarves who who are lost and blind in the darkness of their own self-absorption. Aslan, said Lucy through her tears, could you, will you do something for these poor dwarves? Dearest, said Aslan, I will show you both what I can and what I cannot do. He came, came close to the dwarves and gave a low growl. Low Low, but it set all the air shaking. But the dwarves said to one another, Hear that? That's the gang at the other end of the stable, trying to frighten us. They'll do it. They do it with a machine of some kind. Don't take any notice. They won't take us in again. Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarfs' knees. Pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices. And each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, and another said that he got a good bit of an old turnip, and a third said he'd found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Ugh! 
Fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. The reality is that there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who are like these dwarfs, those who are lost and blind in the darkness of their own selfishness and sin, and they have no taste buds for glory. And there are those who are like Aslan's friends. Their world has been changed gloriously by Jesus. Their hearts desire, and they run to him, and they bury their faces in his mane. I love that picture. It's a picture of worship. And that's what it's like here at this church as we gather each week. For some people, the things of the gospel that we sing and hear about and preach about on Sunday morning, for some people that come here, it's like eating old turnips and eating raw cabbage leaves. It's like drinking dirty water out of a used donkey trough. These people greedily eat up the things of the world because they have never really tasted and seen that the Lord is good. But there are also people who come in here every week and they're thirsty and they're hungry for Jesus and they want good news and they come in here and they want to see Jesus and just run to him, their heart's desire, and they just want to bury their hands and their faces in his mane. Is that you today? I hope so, because there's no better place to be than loving on Jesus and having him love on you. And that's the kind of people that we encounter in Psalm 134. So I'm just stealing our big idea straight from them today. And what they would tell us today is this. Bless the Lord. The appropriate response to Jesus and all that he has done for sinners like us through his life, death, and resurrection The appropriate response is to bless him. But what does that even mean? We just sang four songs that just had the same thing of blessing the Lord. What does that even mean? Well, let's talk about it. Psalm 134, look at verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Come, bless the Lord. Come, bless Yahweh, all you servants of Yahweh, who stand by night in the house of Yahweh. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless Yahweh. Now, remember the context here. Psalm 134 closes out the ascent psalms. The ascent psalms were songs that the ancient Israelites would sing as they journeyed three times a year to Jerusalem to worship God in these three yearly festivals. And so Psalm 134 fittingly closes out these road trip songs Because the traveling worshipers have now arrived at the temple in Psalm 134. They've ascended up to Mount Zion, up to Jerusalem. They've been on this long journey, and now they are excited to worship Yahweh. This is what they've been moving towards this whole journey, is to see Yahweh, to worship him. Old Testament scholar Alec Motir describes the situation well, so I want to quote him at length here. He says, The striking simplicity... And simple beauty of Psalm 134 make it a supremely wonderful conclusion to the songs of the great ascent. How easy it is to picture a family group reaching the city in the evening of their pilgrimage journey with the youngsters clamoring to go straight to the temple. Father is adamant. You've had a long enough day. Tomorrow will be soon enough. But the youngsters are too canny for that and they know that mother will be a softer touch. Of course they want to see the temple. Another late night won't hurt them. 
and they arrive in time to see the entrance of the night priest to join in the greeting for their blessing. And they stay late enough to hear the blessing pronounced on each one of them. And all in the dark security of the city which has been their goal all along their pilgrim way. Would they not indeed feel that all the blessings and securities of the maker of heaven and earth were indeed enfolding them in that sacred enclosure and in the soft darkness of that night? All his irresistible will as creator, all his sovereign power, all his resources, and coming out of Zion as its source, all the mercy and grace of his great salvation. All worship should be like that. A blessing of Yahweh, a review of his character, his grace, his saving power, his providential care, the blood of the sacrifice he has provided and ordained, the rest he gives to his beloved as he welcomes us into his house and home. That's Psalm 134. It's, it's destination reached. It's we finally made it. It's worship. It's the presence of the Lord. It's coming home again and savoring the Savior. And so these traveling worshipers arrive at the temple late at night and they call out to the priests and those other servants who are working in the sanctuary and they call on them to bless Yahweh, to bless the Lord. That's the structure of this psalm. Verses 1 and 2 are the worshipers calling out to the priest to bless Yahweh. And then it switches. And in verse 3, it's the priest pronouncing a blessing upon the congregation, the congregation that Yahweh would bless them as they close out the worship service. But notice the first word in verse 1. It's the Hebrew word hene, which we saw several weeks ago in Psalm 133. It's the word which, it's an invitation for us to enter into the scene. It means something like, behold, come here and look, see for yourself, open your eyes and see. And so these traveling worshipers have arrived at the temple and they are now calling on the priests and the temple servants to open their eyes and to observe once again who Yahweh is, to see again how good he is to sinners, to see how he has provided forgiveness through sacrifice, and to see once again how he, as a holy God, invites sinners into his presence. These worshipers are saying something like this to the priests. Look around again, servants of the Lord. Open your eyes and see. Yahweh has made it possible for us to be with him. Even though we are sinners, he has made it possible for us to be in covenant with him. See for yourself. Look at the sacrificial system that we have. Look at the sanctuary and all the sacrifices and all the utensils that are used in worship. Look, priests. It's all proof that Yahweh cannot get close enough to his people. So what are you waiting for, night priest? Bless the Lord. Lift up your hands and bless the Lord. So there's this mutual exhortation and encouragement to bless the Lord here. Let me just pause for a minute and remind you that pastors and elders need encouragement to bless the Lord. We're not just naturally wired. Everything's perfect. I'm always worshiping Jesus. We need encouragement, just like these night priests needed. We are not immune to needing gospel exhortation. So email us. Send us notes of encouragement. We need it. Just 
send an email and say, bless the Lord, exclamation point. Do what these traveling worshipers are doing and exhort us to bless the Lord and exhort one another in community here as a family. Just email or text someone one day and just say, bless the Lord. We need to each call on each other to open our eyes to see the beauty of the triune God and to be reminded to bless his name. But I want to help answer two questions right now. Number one, what does it mean to bless the Lord? And number two, why does scripture command us to bless the Lord? Question number one, what does it mean to bless the Lord? What does that even mean? Is it just Christian jargon? What does it mean? I mean, how can we as sinful people bless a holy God? He doesn't need anything from us. So how do we bless him and what does that even mean? Well, the Hebrew word here is the Hebrew word barak. Barak. It means to enrich. So the idea here is that when we praise the Lord, when we worship him, we are enriching, not enriching him because he doesn't need anything. We are enriching his reputation in our minds and in the, uh, in the minds of the congregation, in the minds of others. To enrich the Lord's reputation in the midst of the congregation. So to bless the Lord means that we review gratefully who he is and what he has done for us, and then we respond in worship. To bless the Lord is to take note of his glories and his excellence, and then to respond in adoration, and that enriches his reputation, his name, his character in our minds and hearts and in the minds and hearts of others. Simply, it's just to be awestruck that Jesus loves sinners. It's to be flabbergasted that he is as good as he says he is. To bless the Lord just means to enjoy him, to enjoy his presence. Question number two, why does scripture command us to bless the Lord? C.S. Lewis is very helpful here. He says, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, Walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. Just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. This is part of the reason why these worshipers in Psalm 134 are encouraging each other to bless the Lord because we delight to praise what we enjoy. Why? Because the praise is not merely an expression of our enjoyment. It completes it. When we bless the Lord, it completes our enjoyment of him. That's the end or the goal of our enjoyment of God, to tell him that we enjoy him. And isn't this what we do with things that we love? We love to tell other people about the things that we love, don't we? Like, oh, you have to watch Stranger Things on Netflix. It's totally rad, right? 
Some of you are waiting. It's coming in a month. Season two. Or, for example, when the Newports were here last week, I said, you have to go to Old West Cinnamon Rolls at Pismo Beach. And they had never eaten at In-N-Out. And I said, you have to go to In-N-Out. Now, why did I do that? Because it completed my enjoyment of those things. And we are called to do this with Jesus. We want to tell others about him. We want to tell people how good he is. We all have loved ones and friends who are like those dwarfs in Narnia. We all know people who are living in a a dark stable and eating the trash of the world, drinking out of used donkey troughs, desperately trying to find satisfaction, desperately trying to quench their thirst. And so what do we do? Like Lucy, we ask Aslan to intervene. And we pray. And then we tell them about Jesus. And then we tell Jesus how much we love him. To bless God is to tell him that he is good, that he is your joy, that he is your treasure, your delight. To bless the Lord is to be like Tyrion who sees Aslan, his heart's desire. To bless the Lord is to bury your face in your hands in the mane of the lion of the tribe of Judah. So scripture commands us to bless the Lord, to worship, to praise, because it completes the enjoyment that we have, and it recalibrates our hearts, and it settles us, it calms us. When we stop and take note of the glories and of his glories and his excellence, and we respond in awe, and we respond in adoration, it has a way of recalibrating our stressed out, overwhelmed hearts. When we take note of God's attributes, when we remember that he is good, that he is merciful, that he is faithful, that he is sovereign, it settles our wandering minds. When we remember that he is Emmanuel, God with us, when we remember that he cannot get close enough to his people, it calms our troubled hearts. Understand this, Grace. Sometimes you just have to stop and open your eyes and see all that God has done for you in Jesus and all that he is doing in your life now. In the middle of your suffering, in the middle of your temptations, in the middle of the chaos of your life, you have to stop periodically and just look to Jesus and just talk about Jesus and just bless the Lord. I've said this before, but many times Heather and I will be discussing some weighty, heavy situation that we are facing, and we start to get overwhelmed. Usually it's me, because she's, she's pretty stable. I'm the, uh, the crazy one here who loses it. We just have to stop, and one of us will say, we just need to stop and talk about Jesus now. We've talked about these things enough. We need to stop now, talk about Jesus, and let's just pray. We talked about it, let's pray about it. You see, it's just so easy to rehearse scenarios and to rehearse situations over and over again in our minds so that we get our hearts worked up to where we feel like we cannot breathe and we're close to having a panic attack and we get so overwhelmed that we become paralyzed. That's easy to do. That comes naturally to all of us. But what the worshipers in Psalm 134 are telling us is to just stop and bless the Lord. 
You have to stop and get recalibrated by rehearsing all that God is for us in his son Jesus. And the worshipers in this psalm, they've been there and done that. They have traveled many, many miles to reach Jerusalem. They have many times along their journey, they went through dangerous terrain to get there. They experienced trials along the way. Just read Psalm 120 and Psalm 121. Read Psalm 124, Psalm 125. They have experienced all that we experience in life. They were scared on their journey. They were stressed out. They were worried as they traveled to Jerusalem with their little ones in tow, wondering, are we going to be ambushed? But when they arrived safely, what did they do? They hightailed it to the temple and worshiped. They recalled God's faithfulness to them. They arrived in Jerusalem late at night, but they just had to get to the sanctuary to worship because they knew that worshiping and blessing the Lord would complete their enjoyment of him. But listen, Grace, unless you see God as favorable and gracious to you, you won't want to bless him like this. You won't want to worship him. As John Calvin said, no one will ever reverence God but he who is confident that God is favorable toward him. Listen, Christian, those of you who have been united to Christ by faith, if you view God as angry and cranky toward you, you won't bless him, you won't even want to bless him, and you won't enjoy him. If you think God is a hoarder who only shares his love and his blessings with the goody two-shoes, if that's what you believe, then you have a misconception about God. Jesus is not a hoarder. He loves to shower sinners with love and mercy and grace. The knee-jerk reaction of Jesus is to bless. Let me say that again because some of you may not believe me. The knee-jerk reaction of Jesus is to bless because he's not a curmudgeon. He's not a cosmic killjoy. So let me ask you this morning, are you confident this morning, right now, that God is favorable toward you? Do you believe that he is gracious and that he wants to bless you? Is that how you see God? Do you see him as a God who wants to bless you, who wants to share his love and share his life with you? Do you see him as a father who sent his very own son to live and die for you and then applies his word to you by the Spirit? Or do you view him as a cranky God, arms crossed, frown and scowl on his face? If you view him as a cranky God, you won't want to bless him like verses 1 and 2 are saying. If you view him as a cranky God, you won't want to show up here every Sunday and worship him on the Sabbath. I think that many Christians have this view of God. They think they have to do things for him, and then he will love him, and, and, and then he will give them grace. They think that all God wants is for people to do things for him, to just check off the list. They think God, all God's interest is, you doing more for me. You try, got to try harder. I saw that, but not good enough. Try harder. Is that your view of God? Do you think he is primarily interested in what you do and don't do? If you view God first as a lawgiver, then that's how you will relate to him. 
You'll always be trying to keep the rules to please him in order to earn his favor. You'll always be trying hard to make sure you stay in line instead of enjoying him as he is. A loving father. Before the foundation of the world, before God even created angelic beings, God was not a lawgiver. He was a father loving his son in and through the Holy Spirit. That is who God is essentially. As John tells us, God is love. And seeing God that way will change everything about your Christian life. Viewing God as being essentially love, a loving father, loving his son in and through the Holy Spirit, and not first a rule maker or a lawgiver, that will change everything about your Christian life. It will make you want him. It will make you desire him. It will make you long to be with him. It will make you want to please him. It will make you want to obey him. John Owen said, So much as we see of the love of God, so much shall we delight in him and no more. Meaning, unless you fully understand God's love, you're not going to delight in him the way you should. Every other discovery of God without this will but make the soul fly from him. Every other discovery about who God is, if you don't come to grips with his love for you, it will make your soul fly from him. When you see his power and his glory, if you don't understand that he's loving, you'll run from him. When you know that he knows everything about you, if you don't know that he loves you first, you will want to run from him. Every other discovery of God, his holiness, his righteousness, his power, without this understanding of God's love for you, it will make you run. It will make your soul fly from him. That's why I preach about God's love all the time. First, because I need it. It's just therapy for me. Thank you. It's to remind us. God is most interested in having a loving relationship with you, not giving you a list of things to do. God is most interested in having a loving relationship with you and not giving you a list of things to you. He wants to bless you. His knee-jerk reaction is to bless you. Do you believe it? Do you believe that he is gracious and wants to bless you? Well, the good news of the gospel is whether you believe it or not. It's true, and he does want to bless you. And that's exactly what verse 3 tells us. Look at verse 3. May Yahweh bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Here in verse 3, we get the priest pronouncing a blessing over these worshipers at the end of the worship service. When it says, may the Lord bless you, this is a second masculine singular in Hebrew, showing us that the speakers in verse 3 are now the priests, and they're pronouncing a blessing collectively on the congregation. As these worshipers stand as one people, the priests pronounce this blessing over them. But what does it mean to be blessed by the Lord? What do these priests mean when they pray a blessing over the people? Here's what it means. To be blessed by God first means that you're in covenant with him. It means that you are in a relationship with him by faith. It means that you have owned up to your sin and your rebellion. You have repented and now you are trusting in Jesus' work for you. And so it means now God's not mad at you. It means that Jesus can't remember your sins. It means, as Ephesians 1, where Paul tells us that we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings 
in the heavenly places because now we are in him, in Christ, in union with him. And so these priests are praying that Yahweh would do what he does as their God. They are praying that he would bless these people that are in covenant with him. In short, they are praying that the Lord would take note of their needs and meet them. That's shorthand for may the Lord bless you. It's may Jesus take note of all of your needs and then he meets them. That's exactly what God does for us. He takes note of our needs and then he meets them. And that's a good prayer to pray for anyone in your life, especially if you don't know how to pray for them. Just say, Jesus, take note of their needs and meet them. You know what they need, Lord. Please bless them and meet their needs physically and spiritually. That's a simple prayer that you can pray for others. Bless them, Lord. Observe. Take notice. Take note of their needs, whatever they are, Lord, and meet them. So to be blessed by God is to enjoy this enrichment that he provides us physically, materially, or spiritually. To be blessed by God is to be in right relationship with him and then to enjoy him. And that's why these worshipers have shown up at the sanctuary. They want to enjoy God. They want God's presence. Their passion here reminds me of an interesting note in the Geneva Bible from 1560. In the comments on Isaiah 40, verse 9, which says, Behold your God. In the little study notes of the Geneva Bible, it says this. He shows in one word the perfection of all man's happiness, which is to have God's presence. That's what's happening in Psalm 134. These worshipers have traveled a long way because they want to be with God. It's late at night but they just have to be with the Lord and they just want to enjoy his presence. So they head down to the temple. Happiness equals having God's presence. They want to show up at corporate worship and get refreshed and get renewed because they've been on this long, exhausting journey. They don't want to be beat up by the preaching. They don't want to be guilted. They don't want to be shamed. They want to be reassured of God's covenant love. And they want to then in return enjoy the God that they love. And isn't that what you want when you come here? When you come to grace, don't you want to enjoy God's presence? Ray Ortland says, we don't drive down to church on Sunday mornings because we want more drama in our lives. We want his green pastures and still waters. Isn't that what you want when you come in here? Green pastures and still waters? You know what we should do on each side of those doors coming in? We should paint on the outside of one and the other. Green pastures and still waters. So that you know what you're in for when you come in here. And so any visitor knows what they're in for when they come in here. When you walk through these doors, it should feel like green pastures and still waters. You should leave here when somebody says, how was church? You should be able to say, it was like laying down in soft green pastures. It was like listening to the quiet of and enjoying still waters. It was so peaceful, so restful. I actually enjoyed the living God today. That's worship. That's blessing the Lord and being blessed by him. It's refreshing. It's refueling. It's recalibrating. It's just pure enjoyment. 
Is that how you view Christianity? The world doesn't think that. What kind of message are we sending? We should be telling, come to Jesus. It's pure enjoyment. Within boundaries, of course. But it's just pure enjoyment. This is where the party's at. Who wants in on this? I do. That's what this city needs. That's what your neighbors and your coworkers need. And my hunch is that deep down inside, your neighbors and your coworkers are craving green pastures and still waters. Why not tell them about Jesus? Why not invite them to church? But notice something else in verse 3. How is God described? May the Lord, may Yahweh bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. The priests who pronounce this blessing on the congregation are reminding them that Yahweh, their God, the God that they enjoy, he's the one who made heaven and earth. And at the very least, this means that Yahweh has the means to meet their needs. When he takes note of our needs, God isn't hoping he can meet them. Like, I saw what they need. Do we have enough of that here? God isn't hoping that he can meet our needs when he takes note of them. He made heaven and earth, so of course he can meet our needs. But it also means that as the creator of everything, nothing is outside his reach. This means that wherever life takes you, Jesus is there. Whatever life throws at you, wherever it takes you, whatever is happening right now with you in your life, God is with you. Your situation is not beyond his reach. Your problems, your family struggles, the mess and the drama of your family, your children, trying to raise them to know the Lord, your marriage, whatever state it is in this morning, is not beyond his presence and not beyond his redeeming hand. That's what Psalm 134 wants you to know. Wherever life takes you, down the road of widowhood, or into the emergency room, or at the funeral home, planning a loved one's burial, or across the glass visiting someone that you love in jail, or just home all alone and feeling lonely on a Saturday night, wherever, Jesus will already be there for you. Nothing is beyond his reach or presence because he is the maker of heaven and earth. And if you find yourself in any of these places that I just described or any other terrible, difficult season where your heart just plain hurts, it's broken, do this one thing. Bless the Lord. Whatever is happening in your life, you cannot go wrong if you bless the Lord. Whatever's going on in your life, it will not be out of place to just stop and say, I'm going to bless the Lord. You will never go wrong if you just stop and bless the Lord. You get recalibrated when you stop and bless the Lord. Isn't that that what we want? When you rehearse the gospel, it recalibrates your heart. So whatever is going on, stop and review gratefully who Jesus is and what he has done for you and then respond in worship. When the train of your heart has run off the track, stop and bless the Lord. Just tell yourself, self, and you can talk to yourself, it's okay. You're not crazy, because we all do it, right? Say, self, stop worrying. Stop stressing, stop being angry, stop complaining, and start blessing the Lord. 
And you made something like, Jesus, I know you're sovereign. You are in control of this situation. You specialize in miracles, so I will trust in you. But help me believe what I know. I believe, help my unbelief. Or say something like, Jesus, you are merciful and gracious. I repent and turn from that sin. And I will believe the good news that there is no condemnation. I will enjoy your affection and acceptance of me, even though I don't feel it. That's what it looks like to bless the Lord. You take note of his glories. You take note of his excellence. And you respond in awe and adoration. To bless the Lord is simply to worship him. To tell him that you are weak and needy. And he is your answer. To tell him that he's your joy, your delight, your treasure. Why do these priests remind these traveling worshipers that Yahweh is the maker of heaven and earth? Because they want to remind these people and remind us of God's power. To remind us of his glory. They want to stir up trust and faith in our hearts. They want us to know that God keeps every promise he has given because he is the creator. Because he is the Lord of history. Because he alone is God. Now think about it y'all. God created this world and he did it all and he needed nothing. He just spoke it into existence. Everything was his idea. Different races of people, all his idea. All the tropical fish, all the birds, all the different reptiles, his idea. All the galaxies, his idea. Coffee, his idea. Barbecue, his idea. Barbecue sauce, his idea. Music, his idea. Mayonnaise, straight from the mind of Satan. And I'm not blaming that stuff on God because Psalm 119 119 tells me that that you are good and you do good. So mayonnaise must definitely be the result of Adam's sin. But seriously, when was the last time you stopped and looked closely and thought long about something in creation and then traced all of that wonder back to God? I did it yesterday with some Heinz, Texas, bold and spicy barbecue sauce from Texas. It was glorious. And I stopped and said, wow, you're an amazing God. When was the last time you enjoyed God as you enjoyed his creation? That's what blessing the Lord looks like. All day long, we are bombarded with opportunities to enjoy God's creation and then to trace that enjoyment all the way back to God and then to glorify and enjoy him as our wonderful, giving, sharing, creative creator. We have numerous opportunities daily to glorify and enjoy God through what we taste and what we see and what we smell and what we feel and what we hear. This was God's good design in creation. This is the way that God designed it. For us, Joe Rigney says, if we extend this divine endorsement of sight and taste, then here we see God enthusiastically endorsing our joy and delight in all sensible pleasures. That is, pleasures we receive through our bodily senses, pleasures that we see, smell, taste, touch here, provided they are enjoyed within the boundaries established by the giver of every good gift. Perhaps God could have done it another way. He might have made an immaterial world populated purely by spiritual beings. Infinite wisdom preferred stomachs and tongues 
and every combination of sour, sweet, salty, and savory that the chefs on the Food Network can discover because that's what they are doing, discovering all the ways that God chose to communicate his goodness, his sweetness, even his bitterness to human palates. My guess is that it will take a while. The creation of food tongues and the human digestive system is the product of infinite wisdom knitting the world together in a harmonious whole the symphony of glory that sounds the triune being contains notes of corn salsa and sour patch kids of sweet tea and rye bread the kind that fills the belly the variety of tastes creates categories and gives us edible images of divine things When was the last time you stopped and looked closely and thought long and hard about something in creation and then you traced that wonder all the way back up to God? But you know what? There's even more goodness oozing out of verse 3. As if all of that biblical truth were not enough, there's still more. With Jesus, there's always still more. So Psalm 134 verse 3 is not a boring verse. It's a mind-blowing verse. And here's what I mean. The God of the universe lives in Zion, in Jerusalem. He made everything in the universe, and yet he chooses to live in a city to be near his people. He could live on Saturn if he wanted to. He could live on Jupiter, but he chose to be near us. His address is in Zion. His address is not in some far-off remote place. His address is on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus cannot get close enough to his people. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what's so amazing about verse 3 is that Jesus cannot get close enough to us. He actually wants to be with us. That's crazy. And when you begin to understand how out of this world that truth is, you'll want to stop and bless the Lord. We don't want to be a church full of dwarves here who are lost and blind and living in the dark of our own self-absorption. We want to be like Aslan's friends who are awake to the beauty of the Lord. We want to enjoy the Lord and enjoy one another, right? Ray Ortland says, after all, the best thing about this life is closeness to God and to one another, isn't it? The essence of life is enjoying the presence of God in worship. Worship is what it means to really live. So as a church, let's really live, right? I mean, we're here. We might as well do it the right way and enjoy it, right? Might as well really live and be who we were made to be and to enjoy creation, enjoy our God as he designed it. Who wants to eat turnips and raw cabbage leaves and drink out of a used donkey trough? Not me. Let's be a church family that buries our hands and faces in Aslan's mane, the one who is our heart's desire. Let's pray. Father, we are awestruck that you would love sinners, that you can't get close enough to your people. It's amazing because we know our sin We know our shortcomings. We understand that we stand in stark contrast to your holiness, and yet you invite us in, into your home.
to be with you, to enjoy you. And you give us creation, all these things pointing us to you. Lord, may we be a church that just enjoys life. It deals with the weightiness of the truth of uh, eternity and lost loved ones and friends and telling them about that. Not neglecting weighty truth, but just relaxing and resting and enjoying you as well. Would you help us to do that? In Jesus' name, amen.